The passage that Bryn read from in Acts is one of my favorite ones. If you look in the trajectory of how Jesus' life goes, he, he dies it's, or with his disciples for like three years. They're all thinking that, hooray, Rome's done. We're going to actually win. Israel's going to return to prominence. We're going to have an, a new king in Israel that's going to kick out these uh, filthy Romans or, or stronger words, whatever they would describe them. But they were tired of being under someone else's thumb. And so when Jesus came and they're thinking, this is the king, this is Messiah, Rome's gone, it's going to be us, and we're going to be in charge, and I'm going to sit at his right hand, and you're going to sit at his left hand, and I'm going to be the minister of defense, and they're assigning themselves positions. At the end of Matthew, Jesus kind of gives them, a, a, we call it the Great Commission, he says, look, you're going to go, you're going to tell everyone about me, you're going to make new disciples, you're going to baptize them, you're going to, you're going to uh, instruct them, and then they're going to go out and make more disciples, and it's going to go to the ends of the world. He uses the word uttermost, like as far as you can think. And it's almost as if it went over their heads. Like, yeah, okay, cool. Because here in Acts 6, it's, it's again one of my favorite parts in the, in the scripture, they're all standing there going, what, what's going to happen next? And so they ask Jesus, is this going to be the time where you set up your kingdom? Is this going to be the time when everything happens? And Jesus is like, look guys, dude, bros, here's how it's going to work. You're going to have to do something here. You've been sent out before. You're going to be sent out again. And so he says, look, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, when he fills you up. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, which is close. He's, he's reiterating the Great Commission. He's like telling them for the third time. Uh, you're gonna, it's going to be here. Then it's going to get bigger and bigger. You're going to tell, to tell people about me. This is going to be your job. You're going to go. This, as you're going, you're going to tell people. And so he's giving them, they wanted a position, but what Jesus is giving them is, uh, is, is a to-do list. He's giving them something to do, not uh, someplace to sit. And he uses this word witnesses, or he didn't use our word witnesses. They use this word martis, which is where we get martyr. It's the idea of like a, a, a someone who in a legal sense put their hand on, on whatever puts their right hand up and says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is what he calls them. You will be legal witnesses to everything that you saw me do. To everything for the last three years that you put your eyes to, you're going to tell other people about this. This is your new job. This is the commissioning of the disciples. Your job is to tell people about me. Go out and be my witnesses. And the Christian culture has taken this to be like, whenever we tell someone about Jesus, we witness. But it's kind of lost its mojo in the words, right? It's kind of lost its power. What were they supposed to talk about when they went to tell people, when they went to be witnesses? They were eyewitnesses, which is a great thing for credibility. Eyewitnesses are great. When you have an eyewitness, they were there. They saw it with their own eyes. They were the first eyewitness. So they, but today... What do, when we go out, when we witness, what do we talk about? Or do we just give people answers? Do we give people uh, apologetical reasons of the science behind belief and all that? But what should we be talking about when we go? It's the same commissioning we have as the disciples had. We could put ourselves in their shoes. We are to go and bear witness, to be eyewitnesses to what God has done in our lives. So what do we talk about? And it's hard to be a witness. 
especially in an environment that hasn't been the that that hasn't been filled with the best version of witnesses around. It's hard to say that you're a Christian nowadays because everyone goes, "Oh, then you must be this, you must be this, you must be this." And the things that they are describing have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. So we've had some bad witnesses in our culture. It's been polluted by politics on both political parties. It's been polluted by some churches. It's been polluted by some Christians and leaders, vendettas and bad interpretations of theology and the scriptures. And so all of a sudden, this eyewitness report of what Jesus has done has been discredited by bad witnesses. So we need to get back to what we're actually supposed to be witnesses of. And so this is the last week of our series, Gather, Grow, Go, which is the the, uh, the foundations of Bethany, all Bethany's. We gather together, we, we encourage one another, we, we grow together in groups, we're growing towards Christ to be more and more like his image, and then you gather, you grow, just to sit in your chair, no. You gather, we grow, and then you gotta do something. Uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians that you have been brought together, you've been adopted into the family, and then he says, so you can do good things. We go. We do good things. We tell good stories. We are witnesses of what God has done in our lives. In order to live into that call of being witnesses, we need to be reminded of what we are witnesses of in the first place. And so today I want to look at three features that we are witnesses of. And they all come from the book of Exodus because everything should go back to Exodus. It's in Exodus 18. Uh, It's going to be over there. But we got the scriptures into Craig late, so don't blame him. Blame me. Uh, You might want to write them down, or if you can flip fast, go for it. But we're going to start in Exodus 18. There's this interaction, or Exodus 33, verse 18. There's this interaction between Moses and God. And it happens at this extremely interesting time. Moses had gone up to the top of Mount Sinai. There was thunder and lightning, and God and Moses were having a conversation. And then God hears something down in the valley at the foot of the mountain, and he goes, Moses, what are, what are those people doing? And uh, Moses goes, and he looks, and sure enough, they had convinced Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest of Israel, to construct a golden calf. And they were worshiping this golden calf. Many of you know the story. And then Moses has the tablets in his hand, and this is where he throws them down and breaks them. And then there's, this, there's a punishment, because this is what exactly they weren't supposed to do. They had mixed up uh, idols from Egypt, and now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai where God is literally resting on the top, and they're worshiping another idol. And so Moses goes, in my terms, you numbskulls, what are you doing? And then Moses stops that, cleans up the mess, finds out, gets to the bottom of it. There's a plague that came to, to punish them, and then Moses goes right back up to the top of the mountain, and God and him have a really honest conversation. God says, look, I've, I've had enough with these people. And he's only like 40 days into the journey right now. And he's got another 40 years. I've had it with these people. He doesn't call them his people. He calls them these people. He wouldn't even mention their name. God's pretty angry at them. And, Moses, and he says, look, Moses, why don't we do this? Why don't we forget them? And I'll start over with just you. And Moses goes, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what you want to do here, God. 
And so he's negotiating with God, which is pretty powerful. There's a lot of implications that go into this. And then God says, fine, you can keep them. But in fact, he says here, verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. So you can go. I'll just stay back here. My presence will go with you, but, but you, can, you can go there. The word presence there is the actual, the Hebrew word is face. Hebrew doesn't have a word for presence, and so face is like, that's the closest we can come. That God's face will go with them, that God's presence will go with them. And then Moses says, not enough. If we're going to do this, God, you're going to have to come with us. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, Don't send us up from here. In verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What us else will distinguish me and your people from all other people of the earth? And then Moses says, I will do the very thing you've asked me because I am pleased with you and I know your name. And so right here, it would have been enough. Moses had got what he wanted. He had convinced God, look, you have to go with us. So you can see what's going on at the base of the hill. They see God as angry. They see God as vengeful. They're afraid of what God might look like. Yet Moses is having a completely different experience. He's talking with God. He's interacting with God. Uh, and, and later it says Moses was one of the only people who can have this kind of conversation. Moses knows what God is like. He's bared witness to what God is like. And he is now have, has to go down to the people at the bottom of the hill and tell them what God is like. So do you see the difference between what God is like, being what they think, and what God is actually like? There's a difference going on here. And Moses wants God to go with them, but doesn't want the people to be afraid of him anymore. So Moses says this, Now, Lord, show me your glory. Essentially, what he's asking for here is Moses wants everybody to get a glimpse of God's true character. That God isn't going to leave them. That God's not going to ditch them. That God's not going to squash them. He's not going to kill a whole lot of them. And the crazy part about this is God says, yeah, okay, I'll show you my glory. And he says this, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and proclaim my name. In your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you can't see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near the rock you may stand on. When my, work, when my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I'll remove my hand, and you will see my back, but you can't see my face. Must be not seen. So here we find the features God says, and there are blanks in your bulletins, so I'm going to make you work a little bit. God gives the three features of what he is like, his character, his personality. Notice he doesn't say he's not approachable. The first one he says here is he says, you will see my goodness, not my power, not my wrath, not my anger. You will see my goodness. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and proclaim my name. This is his name. And we say it all the time. It's that cliche, God is good. There's a song we used to sing in, in Sunday school growing up. God is so good. God is so good. Da, da, da. And I forget the rest of the words. It was pretty much just that. God is good. And we say this all the time, but it's hard all the time 
to believe that God is good. If God is good, the old question is, then why is all of this stuff happening? Why is there evil in the world? It's been asked since time started, and it's a great question, and it's one that's not easily answered, and it's not been answered well for the longest time because we live in the tension. All through Scripture, God is constantly described as good. In Genesis, for the first two chapters, everything that God does is good. In the Psalms, over and over, each person that writes a psalm proclaims God's goodness. Jesus, when someone says, good teacher, he says, why are you calling me good? There's only one person that was good. And James, uh, James, the writer, says that every good and perfect thing comes from God, who is good. So what do we mean by good? When you think of something good happening, how do you define it? For me, it's usually the absence of things that are bad, right? It's easy. It's good, and then there's bad. If something's good, there's no pain, there's no confusion, there's no more arguments, everything is breezy. It's I-5 at 4 a.m. with no one on it. You can go as fast as you want, and it's just everything is going your way. That's good. There's the absence of suffering. That would be good, and I tend to agree with it, but that's sadly not how the world works. The world's not going to be painless. It hasn't worked that way for a long time, and we experience this pain on a daily basis. There's a psalm, Psalm 73. It's written by Asaph, who was one of the worship leaders for David. And the whole psalm is about goodness and God's goodness. And he starts with, here is why I think God is good. And he says in Psalm uh, 73.1, he says, he is good to Israel uh, surely, the Lord, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he goes on to say, because he gives us good things, that's why it makes him good. It's a very shallow definition of goodness. And if you continue on through the psalm, I encourage you to do this. You continue on through Psalm 73, you see Asaph getting to a point. He's saying that it's not just because good things happen that makes God good. And in verse 28, he begins to look at goodness completely different. He says in verse 28, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all of your deeds. What he learns is that's one thing to get good things. Bad people can give you good things all the time. But God is good simply here at verse 28 because he is near in times of bad. God doesn't ditch you when things go wrong. God doesn't leave you high and dry when things go wrong. In fact, his presence is what makes him good. He, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of evil, in the middle of pain, God doesn't leave. The fellowship is what makes God good. In fact, it shows up in his name in Exodus, his name Yahweh, which means closer than your breath. Moses is saying, or God says, I hear what everyone's going through. I hear that they're having to, to build bricks. I hear that, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to be near to them. Romans 8 picks up on this. Romans 8, 28, it's the, the email signature. It's the license plate frame. It's the sticker on the back, and many of you know it. And we know that God works all things together for his good to those who had loved him and those who are called according to his purpose. And we read this and go, yes, nothing bad's ever going to happen to me. That's not what it says. 
In fact, there, there, there's a, a key word in here. It's the word works for. Uh, it's the Greek word son ergo, or ergeo, I'm not Greek. Uh, it's made up of two words. The first word is son, which is the prefix for with or alongside. And the last one, ergeo, which we get the word energy from, but it means to work. And so if you read it, to put it together this way, God works alongside of us to work things for good. It means that he's next to. The term literally means with you to bring something about. He didn't ditch you. What makes him good is that the passage is promising us that he works alongside of us in the bad circumstances to bring good out of evil. God is good because he brings good from evil. Romans 8.28 teaches us that not all things happen for a divine purpose, as though God is willing good and bad things, that God wills bad things. That's not what it's saying. God is saying that God will work with us, and whatever purpose might come to pass, however, however power might be against us, how God's will may be that God works to bring a good outcome from it. Do you see the difference? God enters into the bad and says, I can redeem this. I can restore this. It doesn't mean that everything is good right now, but it does mean one day that it will be. If it's not good right now, God's still working, and he won't stop working in this. When we go, one of the first things that we do is we announce people that God's not done yet. If you find yourself in a bad situation, God is working to bring about a redemptive story to it, to, to redeem it, to bring about God's remedy. I could say with confidence from experience going through the death of a family member to a house burning down to job searches and all of those things, I never had to say, God is bringing this to me. But the perspective was always, God is going to do something from this. Why? Because he's good. He works the good to it. I'm sure that God didn't bring about evil, but he can bring good from evil. So whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, hear this. God's working, and he's working alongside of you to bring good from it. So the first feature we go with is God's goodness. When people ask what God is like, he is good. Then we say, God is merciful, he says in verse 19 of Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Mercy is something that we don't see a lot of in our culture, right? In fact, the opposite of mercy is judging. And we are real good at judging. When you judge somebody, what do you do? Judging was the first sin that we see in Genesis. It's the judgment of good and evil. That's what they're doing. They're judging. They're putting something in their place. They're saying, you're good, you're bad. You're good, you're bad, you're hopeless, you're hopeful, I, I, I don't understand you, never will, I like you. And so you start judging things. This is what judgment does. Opposite of judging is mercy. When you say mercy, you do something different. Mercy says, I may not agree with you, but I'm not going to write you off. Mercy says, I'm going to get as close to you as possible to see things in your perspective. One idea of mercy is that you get as close to the person to see yourself in their eyes, to see your own reflections in the, in, the, in the shape of their eyes so you can see them. Mercy 
It's not judging them. It comes from the, the Hebrew word kanan, which means to bend or to stoop or to show kindness. Mercy is the ability to get into the per- person's skin until we see with their eyes, think with their mind, feel with their feelings, that we might see ourselves in the same boat. It's the, office, it's the opposite of our cultural idea that many of us have about God. We say that God is vengeful, that God is constantly judging, that he's judging us and wants to stomp us out. And my suspicion is this, that people look to us to see what God is like. People have looked for the longest time about people who have been really good at judging, really good about telling people where they're going to go and how they're going to be burning as they go there. And, and, and they said, that must be what your God is like, because we're the image of God. We're his representatives. We present God to everybody. And so when they see Christians down by the stadium holding these signs that are 12 feet tall saying, turn or burn, essentially, That's not really a good representation of God's mercy, is it? Because at that point, you're yelling, you're shouting, you're not getting very close to them. When people see Christians constantly condemning instead of being merciful, it reflects back on the God we follow. If the God we follow is good and he's given us grace, that grace can never be condensed to a sign or a bumper sticker or a cliché or a Facebook post, or a Twitter post. God's mercy and grace is so vast that the only way we can describe it is by living it and expressing that same mercy. In fact, at the point, if it goes down to a a post or a sign, I think we've missed it. Oftentimes, it's not the ones holding the sign, uh, but it's also the day-to-day interactions we have with other people where we label, where we judge, where we condemn rather than giving mercy. Paul talks about he was the one who had all of the right education. He had all of the right experience. He did everything correctly. And he says he's the only one that really could judge, and he has perfect reason to judge. And he's talking about the church. But he says, I don't. He says in 1 Timothy 1, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to to save sinners. And I'm the worst one of them all. This is the beginning of mercy. You can look at someone. You might not agree with them, but you can say, I can easily be just that. I can be just like them. You see yourself in their situation. Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the biggest one of all. This, you say to, about a person, uh, this one is prideful. Well, I can be prideful too. This one is arrogant. So am I. That person's a glutton. I love bacon. And it goes on and on. This person has issues and needs to see, needs to see someone about it. This per- and we start labeling and labeling and labeling, and we forget that we have the same issues. Mercy is able to say to that person who you say, they have tons of issues, and say, so do I. I have a lot of issues too. That's mercy. You see things from their perspective. I had a therapist that, that worked through me or worked with me through this. And I had a problem with my boss. And I thought he was the biggest jerk. And, and some days I'm still convinced and then I have to go back. And, and, but she, she had me do something. She pointed out the issues that I had with this person. And then she said, and it, it still haunts me the way she said it, you are the same way. 
I'm like, oh, why am I paying you? <laughs> but it showed me something about mercy. I had no mercy uh, for this former boss of mine. I was easily judging him and putting him in his category instead of looking at him. And in a way, having the kindness to say, I see why you're coming at this with this. I see your brokenness. I'm broken too. And that's where mercy begins. Paul's example shows us that the root of our judgment is the absence of mercy, but at the root of that is our own double standards. We think everybody else should have their act together. In the meantime, we do not. So Paul says, mercy. God looks so far, he looks like goodness. God is merciful because he doesn't look at us and say, you're all done. He has mercy upon us. He says, I'm going to be merciful towards them. And then Jesus comes in our own skin, experiences everything that we experience. The epitome of mercy has mercy, dwells with us. And then we see the last part of God's features, compassion. In Exodus 33, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God looks like goodness. God looks like mercy. God looks like compassion. It's the Hebrew word rakam, which means to love deeply or to have a tender affection for. Rakam can eventually be traced out to the idea of grace in the, in the New Testament. Compassion means to love deeply with every single fault that you have. God looks at the people of Israel. He looks at us and says, I'm good, I'm merciful, and though you are full of all of your faults, I still love you. In Psalm 103, David writes about this. Uh, he writes about the one who brings forgiveness, who brings healing, who executes justice for, and righteousness for all. Then he cites the capstone of God's goodness by declaring this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love, but he doesn't end there. He says in verse 9, he will not always accuse for he doesn't harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay along, repay according to our iniquities. For as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As the east is from the west, so far he has removed the transgressions from us. It's the tender love of God that enables others to return to him. You may have been made mistakes in your life. You may have made a mistake this morning, last night. You may make a mistake by wearing Seahawks gear to church. You, you, we all make mistakes. Heppers. Uh, we all make the mistakes, but the compassion of God says, I still love you in the midst of that mistake. I'm not writing you off. And it's hard to understand this simply because we have a hard time being compassionate to ourselves. We write ourselves off. Oh, there's no way. I'm too filthy. I'm too dirty. I've made too many wrong decisions. We measure God's compassion the same way that we have compassion for ourselves. And we measure God's compassion the same way we have compassion for others. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a bad mood, I don't have a lot of compassion for people. When I'm cranky, I'm not very compassionate. When I woke up on the wrong side of the bed, that's not one of my good, compassionate days. I have a hard time oozing compassion. God doesn't. In the midst of faults, he gives compassion. When we look at the Gospels time and time again, it says over and over that God, Jesus, was moved with compassion. 
And it's not just this flowery language. What it means is that Jesus was moved with compassion. means that his heart was broken, his gut was wrenched. And what caused him to move, it is not away from a situation, but it's towards a situation. When God says, I'm compassionate, what he's saying is, I'm not afraid about how dirty you are. I'm not afraid about how dirty we might be. He's not repulsed by our past. He's not shook by our presence. And instead, he can look towards us and move towards us and redeem the future. This is the compassion from God. It's displayed in the prodigal son. This kid tells his dad, I would rather you be dead. Give me my inheritance. He goes and he does whatever he wants to do forever long his money lasts. And then he's walking home and he has this whole speech. His dad's going to be mad, going to be ticked, going to make him be a slave. And before he gets a word out, his dad is has his arms around him, the ring, shoes, robe, and he's planning a party. And this kid's like, but I had a speech that I was going to use to convince you. And the dad says, doesn't matter. That's compassion. This is the compassion that God has for us. The father embodies compassion, runs, doesn't let his son get a word in. No matter how unclean, sinful you are, there's compassion. The Christian life makes zero sense until we begin to understand what God's compassion looks like. It's what Jesus embodied. God moves towards us in our anger. God moves towards us in our brokenness. God moves towards us in the middle of our addictions. God's moved towards us in wherever place you are in today, in our failures, in our pains, in our rejections, in our regrets, in compassion, God moves and meets us. This is what God is like. He has compassion on us because we will never be where we should be, and he knows it. But God is good. God is merciful. God is compassionate. With all the wrong turns that we've made, compassion means that Christ loves you. He loves you. He doesn't love not the church, not the world. He loves you, and nothing can ever make him stop loving you. This is what we are witnesses of. This is what the disciples witnessed. For three years, they witnessed Jesus do exactly this. In the middle of compassion, he moves towards someone who has a skin disease and heals them. In the middle of compassion, he spits on the ground and puts the mud on the person's eyes until he could see. In the middle of compassion, mercy, and goodness, he puts himself on the cross. This is what we are witnesses of. When we go... We become witnesses of this to other people. And my prayer is that each and every one of you would experience this with your own eyes. That you would experience God's goodness working through the situations that you are in. That you would experience God's mercy. That he has not abandoned you. And you would experience God's compassion. That he is moving towards you. And as you experience those three things you would move towards others in the same way. We gather, we grow, and then we go as witnesses to what God has done in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you gave us a job. You created us, you empowered us, you fill us, and then you tell us to get to work. And so God, may we, may we when we go, may we go in the same way you go towards us. May we embody these three features of you, of goodness, mercy, and compassion.
May we ourselves become witnesses of goodness, mercy, and compassion. May we see your goodness. May we experience your mercy. And may we also experience your compassion for us. That we might give it to others. In Jesus' name.